It's Mattress Firm's Daylight Savings Sale. This weekend, you might lose an hour, but you can gain a better night's sleep. Save up to $600 when you get a king bed for a queen price and a queen for a twin. Plus, Friday through Tuesday, get a free adjustable base when you spend just $4.99. Don't wait. Visit a store near you or mattressfirm.com to find your perfect bed. Your budget stretches further at Mattress Firm. Offer valid with qualifying purchase. Restrictions apply. Valid to participating locations only. For offer details, visit mattressfirm.com slash sale. The Film Review, movies, music, culture, politics, society, podcast, interviews, movie reviews, and more. Live Sundays at 5.30 p.m. on Facebook at Crazon Dion. Hey, everybody. This is Lunell, the original bad girl of comedy. I'm here at the Link Promenade in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada, and you're watching The Film Review. The Film Review Massive. I am sitting here with a very important person. That's right. He's important because he is pushing a new trail within the Congress of the United States of America. He's a new face amongst many faces. He's been in the uh, Congressional Hall since 2013. And I'm speaking about none other than Congressman. Joaquin Castro. How you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. congrats on the show and everything y'all are doing, too. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, from you, I appreciate that. Everyone who says that, I love it. I love <laughs> it. Thank you. Um, how's your stay in Las Vegas been? I know you've been... I, I, I it good. I, I know that uh, congressional people and politicians don't like to say that they're jet-setting, <laughs> but you've been jet-setting and, you know, you just really landed, correct? Yeah, I took it, you know, of course, I'm in Texas, so we're two hours ahead, so I, I think I took, like, a flight at 7 a.m., so I got here at, like, you know, 8 o'clock mm -hmm. Las Vegas time, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm okay. So how's that losing that, <laughs> that sleep? It's all right. I hadn't had any caffeine, so I have a headache, but, you know, other than that, I'm okay. 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 First question. What happened in your childhood that made you want to become a public servant? You know, I had parents that were both very much involved in the Mexican American civil rights movement in the 1960s and seventies. And it's interesting because they were really in their families, the first ones to get involved in politics on my mom's side, uh, my grandmother was the first to come to this country around 1922. And when my grandmother came to Texas, there were signs that were that were up ab above certain Texas businesses that said, no dogs, Negroes, or Mexicans allowed. But my grandmother was not a political person. You know, she was a legal resident for about 40 years, and she didn't become a citizen until the early 1960s. But it was my mom who grew up in that, you know, she's a baby boomer, so she grew up in the 1960s. She came of age at that time, and she really started working towards civil rights. And my dad at the time was, was doing a similar thing. You know, he was the first in his family to go to college, and uh, my dad got a math degree out of UT Austin, but... Um, but really got involved in the community. So my brother and I, my twin brother Julian, of course, is running for president. Um, we grew up in a family that believed that when government works right, that it can, it can create opportunities in people's lives. Uh, and I still believe that. And that's why I went into public service, because I believe that when government works right, uh, and it doesn't have to be heavy-handed, but that it can create opportunities in people's lives and help them pursue their American dreams. Okay, so let's let's uh, extrapolate a little bit and let's stay on the no dogs, Negroes, and Mexicans allowed yeah. signs. Okay, 
how will I word this? Um, you you're in Texas. Yeah. When people say "Remember the Alamo," that means something to them. Did you, as a young person, come up experiencing uh, racial strife or uh, racial tension because of who you were as a person? Then I have a follow up. Yeah, I think some, you know, although I was I lived in a neighborhood growing up. I was on the west side of San Antonio and the west side of San Antonio was probably over 90 percent Mexican-American. Okay, so I was very much kind of, you know, in a cocoon. Yeah, kind of. Uh, and I didn't fully realize that until later. Mm-hmm. Uh, How until, much later? Uh, well, I went to college. I went to college in California. My brother and I went to Stanford. And before I went off to Stanford, I'd never left San or I left San Antonio a few times. Uh, I think I'd been on an airplane once or twice before, but had never really been outside of my city very much and really had stuck around my neighborhood a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in San Antonio. So it was a real eye-opener going outside of the city. Um, you know, now, I grew up again with my parents were together till I was eight, and then they, they separated. Um, and they would, the, we were always around their activism and what they were talking about and the discrimination that that Mexican-Americans were facing. But I was growing up, I think, um, in a kind of cocoon. Um and so it wasn't until later that I fully realized, I think, uh, or, or saw some of these things. Okay, so as you uh, exited your cocoon and your last name is Castro, did you? Uh, this is a question I have to ask, and I've been yeah. dying to ask both of you this question at the same time. Being that there was a famous Castro yeah. named Fidel, did you ever run into discrimination because your last name was Castro and could you describe that uh, yeah no I think I got confused a lot like if, for example if I say my last name's Castro people th- would think that I was Cuban right like Cuban American rather than Mexican American um, and I would joke that I probably couldn't win any elective office in Florida uh, or in Miami but other than that it was not it was never too much of an issue um, you know because you have some Gostros that are in San Antonio or in Texas that are Mexican American as opposed to Cuban. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're in the Congress, right? How how does the for, for people who because we we go deep, we don't just ask questions about superficial yeah. things. How does the Congress work on a daily basis? How is a bill drawn up? How is it presented? Who presents it? Who accepts it? Break that down for the people. We need a little civics lesson because they don't teach civics anymore. No, I mean, no, that's actually a great question because, you know, the bill ideas actually come. I think people think that members of Congress are the ones that come up with all the ideas uh, or that only special interests do. Right. And really, the, the ideas for bills come from all different folks. I served 10 years in the state legislature, for example, and some of the best pieces of legislation that I was able to push uh, and be successful with were ideas that came from ordinary people. Uh, for I'll give you one example. Um, I worked a lot on juvenile justice issues, and there were two women in San Antonio that had uh, their sons who were juveniles that were in the juvenile justice system. And they came to my office one day. I want to say this is somewhere around 2006, and they started talking to me about all of these problems in the juvenile justice system. And 
I'll give you one one concrete example that I remember. There was a packet for parents. You know, the, the these were the parents of the kids that were in the system. And the packet of information had a phone number if they needed information, wanted to call for information. And these people called and they said the phone number was wrong, that it was a disconnected number. It wasn't working, mm-hmm. right? But that was just symptomatic and symbolic of deeper, larger problems within the juvenile justice system. And the next year, the legislature, I believe it was the next year, reformed the Texas juvenile justice system and uncovered really shameful things about abuse of boys and others in the system, even abuse of guards. The turnover at some of these facilities was 75%. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there were these very big problems that were going on. Um, and, you know, I was able to be helpful uh, in terms of amendments and so forth in trying to develop basically a parent's bill of rights, for example, mm-hmm. so that parents would know what was going on with their kids that were in the system. Because a lot of times they were being kept in the dark. So that was one idea. That was one example to me of the fact that that was not my original idea. That was the idea of these two parents who were experiencing a problem in the juvenile justice system with their kids. And they came to their legislator and said, hey, can you help us fix it? And then uh, how does that push through then? So you, so they brought you the idea. Yeah. You draw up the legislation. And actually – and. It's interesting because the members of Congress don't actually write the bills, right? Okay, okay, explain. So, yeah, yeah, so I think think people think that you actually sit there and write the bills. Actually, if each of us did that, the legal code would look like completely like a circus, right? It would make no sense at all. So there's actually what's called a legislative council of attorneys Mm -hmm. that, you know, you tell them, hey, this is my idea, and then they draft the legal language, the statutory language, and they're trying to figure out uh, where it would fit in in existing law, right? Uh, so does it fit in in this section or that section? So they, they draft it up. They figure out where it fits in. And then you file it. And then you get into the, the process that I think, you know, when we learned in school how a bill becomes a law, that's really when that process kicks in. Now you got to go convince your colleagues uh, to support your legislation um, it goes to a committee first and then it comes to the house floor usually. And then it's got to go to the other chamber, the Senate in my case, cause I'm in the house, you know, and one of the, one of the, uh, regretful things about Washington right now is that you really don't have much legislation that's, that's, that's passing, uh, that's going through the pipeline. Uh, that's, that's part of the gridlock that we, that we're in basically. Uh, Mitch McConnell in the Senate, uh, has basically shut down the bills that have been passed over from the House, is not really taking many of them up in the Senate. Uh, so our legislative process right now is really gummed up. Okay, two questions about that. Let's drill down into yeah. that for a bit. The media covers it as if it's gridlock, as if it's both sides. Right? Yeah, that's right. From just the person who is watching, the Democrats seem to not be able to craft the message that lets the people know that it's more one side than the other. Yeah. And and how is that going to be solved? I mean, how but will yeah. that be solved? I mean, that's a great question. I think a great observation. In American journalism, because there are tenets of fairness um, and at least allowing each side a perspective, you know, there is this idea that uh, – there's often this idea that both sides are equally to blame or that both sides have an equally strong or weak argument, right, or vulnerabilities. And 
you know, my brother Julian has critiqued this, how the media handles or treats situations like we're in now, you know, where a both sides model of reporting uh, it really is not accurately capturing what's going on uh, in American government. Um, even with legislation, like I mentioned, you have really one person, Mitch McConnell, that has decided to shut down uh, a lot of you know, the pipeline for legislation passing. So if, if American journalism only continues to apply that, that both sides-ism, right, which I understand was rooted in the idea that you've got to give, you know, fair hearing to both perspectives, but what it has, what it ultimately became, I think, was not giving, not just giving fair hearing to both sides, but implying equal blame to both sides, and that's where I think it it has well, gone off the rails in I, these times. Here's an example that's a little bit off to yeah. the side of it. But um, when George Bush Sr. was caught up in a sexual scandal, he told the media, I will not talk about that. And the media dropped it. When Bill Clinton was caught up in a sexual scandal, he didn't say, I don't want to talk about that. He said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And then the media just ran with it. The messaging is different. It's a, it's a certain power that the Republican speaks with, even if it's fabricated, they, they will speak with that power. And then the, it, it appears just from watching yeah. that the Democrat does not speak with that same power. Cannot, I'll say that the Republicans manipulate the media. And the Democrats want to be fair to the media. Is that is that hmm. a wrong observation? Because I feel that's the way it is. When you look at throughout the whole history of things and you look at certain things, how Republicans handle it and how Democrats handle it and how the Republican messaging is just like 24 seven. They're on their talking points. They stay one. One says it. No, it's I all throughout. the. Yeah. No, I, I think that that. Yeah, I mean, for in many ways, they've been very disciplined about messaging and getting one message out. Um, you know, for years, for example, I think before we got into the contemporary era that we're in, uh, a lot of their messaging centered around lower taxes for and less government, right? That's a quick and easy ta- talking point. Lower taxes means that you keep more of your own money. Less government means that government is not in your business. That's a very easy message to deliver. And on the other side of that, the Democratic message, um, you know, was not always delivered with the same clarity. What was the message at the time? Uh, I think that our message is opportunity. Uh, I think our message is building an infrastructure of opportunity in this country for everybody so that people can chase their American dreams. Um, You know, now opportunity means different things for different folks. Some people may want to be uh, you know, a radio personality. Some people want to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever it is they want to do. But everybody in the country wants to have opportunity to do something in their lives that's meaningful to them. Um, you know, so for me, when I think about what it means for me to serve as a Democrat in Congress, to me, that means doing everything I can to create opportunity for people. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get to the 800-pound uh, elephant in the room. Yeah. Okay, uh, President Trump, number 45, he's willing to go into the into the gutter to get to express, to put across his messaging. 
how is a Democratic candidate for president going to be able to battle that when yeah. they're more on talking like a politician instead of getting down mm-hmm. in the mud with him? Yeah, I mean, look, Donald Trump was different to American politics than what we'd seen, at least in the modern era, right? Uh, he he didn't hold elective office before. Uh, he pitched himself as, well, let me go back before that. He basically built up a brand for 40 years as a kind of monopoly man. Uh, you know, He was covered in the New York tabloids for years and years, for example. Uh, he's got a brash personality which also, in a weird way, to some people, has a rogue charm to it. Uh, and he came in at a moment in American politics where a few things had happened. Number one, you'd had a Democrat in the White House for eight years in President Obama. Uh, and on the right, among conservatives, there was a fierce backlash against President Obama. Uh, so anytime you have a president of one party in office for eight years, there's usually a kind of a, a yearning for giving the other party a chance. Um, And then the second thing is that Donald Trump ran in an era where social media was in full bloom. And he was the first person to win the presidency having run in an era where media was in full, social media was in full bloom. So he was able to basically circumvent traditional media in a way that you wouldn't have been able to do in the year 2000 even or 2004. Uh, you know, so for him, I mean, they say that timing is everything in politics. And for him, the timing was right. That was finally the moment. He wanted to run probably for 20 years, yeah. right? Yeah. But held off and actually, and for him, ended up running at the right time. Um, in terms of how you deal with him, uh, it's a great question. Um, I think that he's digging a deeper and deeper hole for himself going into the 2020 elections uh, because of what he and his administration, how they've conducted themselves. I'm on the Intelligence Committee, for example, and uh, he has committed impeachable acts and I believe will ultimately be impeached by the House of Representatives. Now, I don't know what Mitch McConnell will do. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying if the House impeaches, they still have to go over to the Senate to uh, prosecute. It could be a situation like Bill Clinton he was impeached. He lo- the only thing that happened to him was he lost his law license, but he still remained in the presidency. There's a, so this is a two-part question. What is the House doing talking to its colleagues on the other side, uh, Republican, about yeah. what's happening? And can you really trust what the Republicans say? Because as we watch it on the media, yeah. the Republicans will come on TV and say, oh, this is so horrible. This is terrible. This is right. And then they will turn around and still back President Trump. I mean, because that seems like that's the game that's being played. Oh, let's say, yes, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. We, we agree with you on this. And then they turn around and don't, which comes to the question about which I want to ask, too, about uh, impugning a person's character. It seems like the Republicans do a lot of impugning of the Democrats but the Democrats still told a line of not impugning. But anyway, so the question is, if he's impeached on the House side, what is what are the steps that the House is doing to make sure that they possibly prosecute on the Senate side? That's one question. Yeah, I, I, You just have to make your best case. Um, and you're right. Look, you look over there at, at McConnell and these guys, it's clear that a lot of them have drunk the Kool-Aid. 
and they're not willing to give up the the cup. Um, and so it's tough. Um, you know, you, you need more people, more Americans to step forward and tell the Republicans to do the right thing, including conservative people. I mean, look, if it's just if it just becomes a matter of Democrats versus Republicans in terms of the impeachment, then Donald Trump probably will not get convicted in the Senate uh, because the country is pretty split 50 50. You're going to have to have. Republican Americans, conservative Americans who acknowledge that this president has abused his office, has violated the rule of law, and that there should be consequences to that for the long-term health of the democracy, of, of the rule of law in this country. And unless we can convince folks to step forward, including some people that may have evidence about impeachable acts, uh, you know, there are these people in government, for example, there are stories this week about Rex Tillerson and some information that he may know about what the president asked him to do. You need people like that who may still be of good conscience to be willing to come forward, step forward mostly as Americans, as patriots, and not as Democrats or Republicans. If if they will do that, then I think there's a chance that we can hold this president accountable for what he's done. But if it all dissolves just into partisan politics and Republican versus Democrat, I think you'll then, yeah, I think he'll, He'll still remain in the White House, and he'll be the nominee in 2020. Now, I think we can beat him in 2020 in the election, but he'll be the nominee for the Republicans. Okay. Impugning one's character. It seems, just watching the media, that the Republicans deal in impugning people. The Democrats are this. They're doing that. And the Democrats seem to hold to the rule. When will the Democrats start to fight fire with fire? Or is that not what the party does. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's nothing wrong with pointing out people's faults uh, for going after them on policies that they've supported or promoted. But we want to make sure also that we're upholding certain values in our American democracy. And if it's a race to the bottom with Donald Trump, then I don't think we're going to win that. If we're just, you know, as my brother has said, I don't know that you're going to outgutter Donald Trump. And if that's if that becomes your main strategy, not only is there a chance that you're going to lose that, but I think you've also lost part of your soul in doing that. Uh, again, uh, like I said, I think it's always fair to go after people in terms of what they've stood up for, the policies they promoted, and so forth. Uh, but some of the things that you see come come out of the Trump campaign you know, they start making stuff up out of thin air. And there's a danger to everybody starting to do that, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, I understand the frustration because it feels like for Democrats, you're always on the receiving end of that, and right? And you're all in, so it costs you elections or, you know, uh, I get that. I just think that we can win and still keep our integrity and our honor and and uphold the best things about this democracy. And, and like I said, I just think there's a danger to everybody racing for the gutter, too. Okay. Let's switch gears. So you're here at Nevada Partners and the Culinary Institute to uh, look at opportunity, like you said. Yeah. So what are right. you looking forward to most at when you're in Las Vegas, while you're in Las Vegas? What yeah. are you looking for most to sing? Because you, you're going all around the valley 
And so what are you looking for most to send? Well, we're going to be at the Pride Parade tonight, okay. you know, to, to celebrate. Uh, and also here at the Culinary Institute to, to get to know this great partnership uh, between the unions and the hotels that allow, that's created this pipeline for people to be able to go work and support themselves and their families. Uh, you know, in, in Texas and in San Antonio, we have a similar programs, but I think they're much smaller in volume and uh, they don't seem to be as fully integrated as this one in terms mm -hmm. of industry and between industry and unions. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm excited to learn about the program and the model uh, and how we'll it could it be applied. Back. Yeah, how it could be applied other places as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how can they get in contact with you? How can they put pressure on your back yeah. through, through uh, letters, through telephone calls? How can they reach you? Well, on my official side, you know, as a member of Congress, all of my information is on the Internet, all my phone numbers, my emails, everything. They just have to Google me. Okay. Uh, you know, and for my brother, of course, uh, he's got his campaign. Um, he's working hard here in Las Vegas. I mean, he's traveling everywhere in Nevada and um, all the early states and in Texas. Uh, but I think it's important that people speak up now and let their presidential candidates know uh, what they want to see in a president, mm -hmm. whoever's elected in 2020. Okay. Well, this has been a robust interview on the film review. Thank you. Yeah. I would like to thank Congressman Castro for sitting down and interviewing with us. So this has been another episode of the Film Review, Movies, Music, Culture, Politics, and Society, and we'll see you next time. Take care. The Film Review, Movies, Music, Culture, Politics, Society podcast. Interviews, movie reviews, and more. Live Sundays at 5.30 p.m. on Facebook at Crazon Dion. Hey, everybody. This is Lunell, the original bad girl of comedy. I'm here at the Link Promenade in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada, and you're watching the film review. By the time you finish this ad, 1,157 people will have planned their travel on Skyscanner. Skyscanner is here to make travel simple while finding you the best deals. From flights and hotels to car rentals, we bring everything together in one place so you can plan the perfect trip from D.C. and beyond. Discover why over 100 million travelers trust us every month. Search Skyscanner or download the Skyscanner app today.